Happy October, everyone. It's still spooky season at the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. And talk about spookiness and Halloween lurking around the corner. I'm actually joined here with Mary DePippi. Hi, Mary. Hello, Andrew. So Mary has been concocting her own type of witch's brew uh, in the form of a new podcast that is now being featured as an Ivory Tower Boiler Room Network production. So please, Mary, tell everyone listening what you have planned. So what I'm doing is, for anyone who's been following the Ivory Tower Boiler Room, you know that True Crime and Academia exists as a blog, but that is no longer the case. We have moved up in the world. It is now a podcast. I am so excited. I will be covering all of the horrific crimes I've already covered before. Obviously, there will be some, some new ones mixed in. And I'm just really excited because I was not really being able to give you guys my full commentary <laughs> on these cases, which I can now do. And I am very excited to be yeah, sharing and with a you. little of your performing arts background. So there'll be uh, some dramatization happening. And I can't wait to hear Mary's first episode. When does it come out, Mary? comes out on October 26th, that's Ooh. Tuesday, and it will continue every Tuesday as part of True Crime Tuesday. Awesome. So we have True Crime in Academia, right? Follow it on Instagram. Mm -hmm. um, also, it will come out under the Ivory Tower Boiler Room because we are the network. And Monday, you will hear an episode of the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. Uh, featuring me as your host, Andrew Rimby. And I will sometimes have a guest co-host with me. Um, for today's episode, I'm solo, uh, but sometimes Mary joins me. Um, we actually just recorded an exciting interview with Stephen Rowley. So uh, look for that in November. Um, and I also am joined by my academic friend, Kelsey Dufresne, who interviews um, Gail Crowther with me, who wrote the book about Sylvia Plath and Ann Sexton. Um, oh, so many exciting interviews, Mary, that we get to do here. So many exciting things going on. So truly, I want to release an all new section now on the podcast, which is a donation section. So it's actually very easy now to help support the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. We are volunteers here. Um, I really appreciate any of you who can support us. Um, thank you all for listening to our anchor um, message that I've recorded. Um, you know, it really does allow us to promote Anchor, who has been really great, a free podcast app, and also a way for us to get the word out about all of you out there hopefully creating your own podcast to come. Maybe future Ivory Tower Boiler Room Network productions. Mm. Let's see. Uh, so that being said, you'll now see every time in the show notes, there's a section to donate. So we really do appreciate um, helping support 
what we do here, which is bringing the humanities to all of you and really solidifying the public humanities mission that is at the heart of the ivory tower boiler room, maybe in the boiler room. <laughs> uh, so, you know, the ivory tower boiler room is a place and it is a public humanities podcast where we interview writers, scholars, performers, and artists, and episodes come out on Monday, and True Crime and Academia with Mary comes out on Tuesday. So really excited for you all to see this new layout uh, this week. So without further ado, to usher in the Halloween season, which is to come on Sunday, I am joined with Brenda Harris, who is a professional opera singer friend of mine, collaborator. She works at Stony Brook University as a um, vocal professor, and she's an artist in residence. And as this comes out on Monday, Thursday night, I want to plug it. Um, Matt Alcoin, who has been so gracious and has been here on the podcast, so look up his episode, um, will be premiering Eurydice, his opera that he composed um, based on the Greek myth. He's going to be talking about Eurydice and the history of Greek mythology and opera and his new book coming out in December. Um, I hope to have Matt back on in a few more a few months after, you know, <laughs> his schedule gets a little quieter because his opera premieres at the end of November at the Metropolitan Opera House. So if you're by New York City, get your tickets to Eurydice. But if you're close to Stony Brook University, I organized with Brenda Harris a free event, free um, Thursday night, 8 p.m., Stony Brook University. Um, you get cookies afterwards. <laughs> so I know Mary wishes she was on Long Island so she could come. I do. But eventually Mary and I will be joining forces, hopefully in Manhattan. Uh, in due time. So that being said, I am so excited to present Brenda Harris singing uh, as Electra, another infamous uh, Greek figure. Um, you can sense the theme this week. Uh, it is some deviousness, spookiness, but also Greek mythology, which I think combines all of those themes and also my favorite holiday, Halloween. So without further ado, here is Brenda Harris. Enjoy everyone. Welcome to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. It is my pleasure to welcome a colleague, professional friend, um, 
international opera and concert critically acclaimed artist, um, Brenda Harris. Thank you so much, Brenda, for joining me in the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. Happy to be here. Uh, So Brenda and I know each other very well with events at Stony Brook. Um, A lot of that will probably come up when I ask Brenda your experience uh, with the Stony Brook Opera, but I've never gotten to actually ask Brenda about her career and all of these really exciting behind the scenes questions. So I'm as much of an audience member here as everyone listening. <clears throat> listening. So thank you, Brenda, for indulging me. You bet. Uh, <laughs> I hope. I hope it's enjoyable. <laughs> yeah. So when I looked at your bio, um, it says that you've now been a professional opera singer for over three decades. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a longevity in the opera world. Um, so <laughs> I'm curious, when did you first learn about opera? Well, let's start there. When did you first learn about opera? Yeah, well, that's a story. Um, <laughs> I grew up on a pig farm in Illinois listening to country music. Um, so I never even heard an opera until I went to college. Wow. I mean, I had heard of opera, but who would bother with that, right? <laughs> so when I went to college, um, my, I had some friends who had season tickets to the Chicago Lyric, um, which was about a two and a half hour drive from where I went to college. And um, we would jump in the car at the end of choir rehearsal on a Friday, you know, tear up there, be running up the stairs to the crow's nest, cheap seats when the bells were ringing, you know, to, to like start the show. And, and then we'd see the show and then we would drive back. So it was like this crazy, you know, we'd get home at like three in the morning. Oh, we'd, we'd usually stop at a Denny's or something for breakfast on the way home. It was at first, it was more of a social event for me than it was actually caring about the opera. And the hilarious part is that the very first opera I saw was Strauss's Electra, which for, for your, I don't know if you you know, your listeners know very much about opera, but it's like one of the most dissonant, crazy, impossible, not particularly tuneful operas in the entire repertoire. And I just remember sitting there thinking, what is this? It's like outer space music. And the production was wild and grand and awesome. And I thought it was just pretty fabulous, I have to say. And then after that, I went to more standard things, you know, in the canon, Mozart and Puccini and things mm-hmm. that were a little bit more accessible. Yeah. But um, I was already kind of interested at that point. I had um, done, I'd been in the chorus in a Minotti opera at that same school my freshman year. But honestly, I, I think the real um, bug was after my, in the summer of my, after my senior year, in the summer that I graduated between undergraduate and master's, I got um, hired by Opera Theater St. Louis to be in their chorus that summer. And they, Opera Theater St. Louis, St. Louis is about a little over an hour from my parents' farm in Illinois. So that seemed like a logical thing to do. And I had no idea, <clears throat> excuse me, that, that it was like a big deal that Apatheater St. Louis is, is a really 
respected company. You know how it is you think, well, it's in my backyard, so it can't be that great, <laughs> which is probably why I was able to sing decently enough to get asked to be part of the chorus. And the very first day, it was just like, wait, what? I was surrounded by all these young, eager, uh, wannabe opera singers. The, the chorus master was great. The director was Colin Graham, who is this iconic stage director who passed on now, but he became a good friend of my husband's and mine. My husband was also in the chorus and that's where we met that day. So, oh, wow. so it was a really big turning point in my life. And that was the thing. And I remember very vividly driving back to the farm and my dad was getting off the tractor and I got out of the car and I said, this is it. This is what I want to do. This is the greatest thing. And he just was smiling and shaking his, his head like, oh my God, what are we going to do? She wants to be an opera singer. <laughs> so yeah, that's how it all kind of got going. So it wasn't <laughs> like um, in your school curriculum that you had opera it, taught to you. It, yes and no. I mean, I, I was taking a music education degree when I first went to my school. I went, I went to Illinois Wesleyan, which is a big choral school. So I thought I was going to be a high school music teacher. Hmm. And then I got turned on and we did do operas there, but it was just very bare bones. It was really, you know, not, it, it's not a particularly opera centric place so it was probably my friends and my interface with Chicago Lyric that made me more interested in it and then I had a teacher who said you know why are you in education you have a good voice and you should try to perform which was very flattering but it was also really scary because where I came from you know it just wasn't a thing I mean going mm -hmm. out and trying to you know make a self-employed living as a singer it just sounded next to impossible so I think that's why that first day and I and I auditioned as a singer and for performance programs and got into the University of Illinois um, for grad school but I think so I was pursuing it to be fair but I think it's why that first day at Opera Theater St. Louis was so great for me because I was surrounded by all these other young singers who were very directed you know, they'd gone to big schools at big opera schools and they just were so much more informed than me. So the learning curve was great and it was a great place to have that experience. So St. Louis, is it called St. Louis Opera? Opera Theater of St. Louis. Okay, so Opera Theater of St. Louis was really your training ground. Well, it was just a pivotal moment because mm. there's a whole lot to do in terms of training. See, the, the, my husband and I got married that next spring. Wow. And then, um, oh yeah, he asked me to marry him three weeks. Oh, that is so adorable. <laughs> wow. wow. All these decades ago. And, <laughs> um, and then the next summer I got, then we moved to New York. And I would say that coming here was my training ground and my husband, because he actually he's the opposite of me he was raised with classical music he's a classical saxophonist and a singer and and my voice teacher and he had a fantastic voice teacher as a youngin and he just was so much more um equipped hmm. and so we went to new york and we just started going to the opera he's like brenda we have to you have to see this stuff you have to start like getting a clue 
And so I'm going to say that probably it was listening to recordings and going to live performances. You know, think about this too. At this time, this is in the 80s when we came here. I mean, geez, incredible people were singing. Sutherland, Pavarotti, Talvala, Giora, Franey, Cabie. I mean, I heard these people live, like on a regular basis. And at that time, we had befriended some older people in, in our church jobs. And I remember them telling us that they had heard, oh, sorry, my phone just tripped. Let me turn that off. I'd remember, I remember them telling me that, telling us that they had heard um, London and Collis and Siepi and Warren. And we were just like, wow, what was that like? But now when I tell these people of the singers that I heard, I get the same, you know, my, my students, I get the same, just this week, I was teaching someone and said, yeah, my husband and I were in the chorus of um, the New York Philharmonic for a Verdi Requiem with Barrett and Pavarotti and Talvola. And they were just like, wow. Yeah, it was pretty wow. Yes. And I don't think we had any idea how quickly some of those immortal people would be gone and how little there was to replace them. But anyway, so I would say the training ground was my husband and New York City for the most part. Yeah. 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 It's interesting because I was lucky in elementary school. We had an opera unit in our music classes. So like we would listen to, we listened to Carmen. That was the first, but like my mom also was in a Hansel and Gretel production when she was in elementary school. So she showed me the pictures of when she was Gretel. So I really got into watching the Metropolitan's production of Hansel and mm. Gretel, that eighties. I think mm -hmm. it's the eighties. With the um, flying angels. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> yeah. And I know we've talked about also that uh, Swedish magic flute. Uh, right. Filmed the production. Bergman, right. Oh, so beautiful. Yeah. And when you mentioned Strauss, all I can think of is when I've taught Salome. Um, okay. That's the, it's, it's, it's very similar to Electra in its wild craziness. Oh, I love it. So experimental, yeah. all over the place. Right. <laughs> Students don't know what to do with the sensuality. Mm -hmm. um, but yes, that is Strauss. Yeah. Um, and you played Electra, right? I or, did. Yes. Yeah. Where did, did you Electra. play Electra? Well, I did Chrysotomus earlier, a number of years earlier. And then I did Electra. This is probably already eight or 10 years ago. Um, it was so cool. It was so unbelievably fulfilling and, and I, dare I say, fun to sing and act and just evil to learn. I, mean, I just can't tell you how hard it is musically and so many words. I mean, you know, nothing repeats. It's just, just a stream of consciousness German all over the place. And, and it's just hard and so worth it. So, you know, I loved it. But um, when I remember when I said I would do it, cause it was at Des Moines and I had sung at Des Moines Metro Opera and I had sung there a number of seasons and, uh, and they, at that point, I don't remember what happened, but we had this conversation and they wanted me to sing Ellen Orford in um, Benjamin Britten's Peter Grimes, which is also an awesome opera. And I was very interested in that, but my voice was taking on more dramatic properties. And so I remember calling them and saying, or emailing and saying, I think I emailed my agent first. <laughs> and I, I said, you know, they're doing Electra, and I actually think I'd rather try Electra. And my, my agent, he, I remember he emailed me back and he said, 
okay, but dude, Electra. <laughs> and I said, yeah, I, I have sun chrysanthemums, so I know what I'm talking about and I think I can do it. And then I had a conversation with the conductor who I knew from other productions and they're like, okay. And um, yeah, it was, it yeah, was but not- What a role. I mean, yeah, right. and I'm trying to remember what is um, the most tragic plot point in the Electra opera? I mean, it's Hard very tragic. Say. Right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but um, wow. Do you mean like, for me, it's when she's like digging, trying to find this, this axe and, and she's going to try to, you know, kill Clytemnestra and uh, Aegeist herself. And then her arrest, her brother shows up and she doesn't recognize him because she thinks he's dead and it's been, you know, 10 years or something since he's been off to war. And that's the most poignant part of the opera mm. when she has oh. this moment of recognition and then he's going to go in and, you know, do the deed and, and does in fact, but, um, oh, it's all just so dark. Well, it's, it's dark mythology. I mean, what is Strauss supposed to do? You know, it's a story that's like so convoluted and, and, Ugh, just so <laughs> ugh, I don't know how else to describe it it's awesome it's yeah. fantastic oh so it's that okay so it's part of the Oresteia mm -hmm. uh, trilogy mm -hmm. yeah okay yeah okay it's, a, it's about Clytemnestra having remarried um uh Aegeist after killing Agamemnon and you know the whole time and she's outside Electra with the dogs and you know treated so horribly and she and her sister Chrysotomus just wants to have a normal life and electors know we have to keep focusing on this revenge mm -hmm. I mean eventually it's what eat, eats her at the end of the opera but it's just it's just it's like it's like an hour and a half of madness and she's on the entire hour and a half well so. I know what I'm going to be listening to during oh it's so uh, cool you know my city weekend <laughs> I need cool. to just <laughs> I mean, it might be a really interesting journey walking, but uh... <laughs> <laughs> there's a fantastic Birgit Nielsen recording with oh, uh, um, uh, Leonie Riesenek as the sister. It's just a fantastic recording. Yeah, yeah check it so out. So that kind of process of, I mean, the nuances that Clytemnestra and Electra have, um, I know in the play, but I'm assuming in the opera, they come to a head <laughs> um, that I'm always curious, coming from the musical theater training and not having that opera training. I mean, I did a little classical training, but not <laughs> to your right. level, Brenda. That is that approach of the nuances of Electra or any role. I know you've um, played Torandot or any role, I know you were also Lady Macbeth. Um, do you approach the singing and the acting parallel or is it the singing you learn the role first and then you put on the acting nuances? So good question. And it's a conversation I was having with a student yesterday because she was singing the composer's aria against Strauss from Ariadne of Naxos in which the composer says, the poets write these fabulous words. Yes, they do, they're fabulous words, but it's the music that makes these words so incredible. And this is a theme throughout 
Strauss's entire life in which he talks about what's the most important. It culminates in his opera Capriccio in which he talks about is the poet, is the composer, is the poet, is the composer. And I think it's like, you know, it's a, it's a challenge because all those factors, at least I can only speak for myself. I don't know what other people do. I generally find that one feeds the other, even in the learning process. Um, and then it all depends on who's doing the talking to you and who's directing the scene and what kind of tempo the conductor takes. But I guess I'm going to default for the most part and say the music tells you so much mm. about the emotion and the character. And you can sometimes play against that or play with it or play around with it. But the music, if you listen, particularly in great composers like Verdi or Strauss or Puccini or Mozart, they, they tell you a lot about what you should be thinking, acting. Yeah. yeah. So I, I think they're just a real hand in glove kind of thing. Sometimes, sometimes you have no choice but to think about the music when it's really hard and think about the vocalism when it's really hard to sing. But most of the time, Andrew, the goal is to think about the text. I think the goal is to just let all of the musical things be the point, because that's the point, right? People are following the words. Just, it's just a play with all kinds of extra emotionality in it. So the goal is to give the audience all the feels and they can't get that if they don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. And that's where I'm just, the operetta, um, genre or like right it's almost this crossover where mm -hmm. the broadway musical really did arrive out of that or even some broadway musicals are operettas or right there could be an argument that right. west side story right. is an operetta or the pop operas like rent or even aida mm -hmm. when out on john redid it the music like you're saying you learn your character through um, even the pitch you have to take or how loud or soft you are in those moments. That's so it, it oh, was somebody like, you know, somebody great like Strauss or Puccini or then the orchestration adds a whole level of things too, because, you know, he, he adds like, like say for example, Lady Macbeth, mm -hmm. you know, there's like, you're in, you're in the sleepwalking scene and there's this theme that goes, it's the low strings and it goes bada bum 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 and then there's this really creepy oboe that goes the whole scene practically and i think that's just the oncoming train i mean you know she's just barreling toward this thing that just he's so genius verdi because he sets it up like there's this she can't sleep right she gets up every single night walks all over the castle it's this thematic material that repeats and repeats and repeats and repeats in this creepy way with these interesting orchestra instruments and orchestration that makes it almost easy to know how to portray that because it's you've got this fabulous support system under you yeah and i'm who did you um sing lady macbeth for which um opera company Oh, wow. That I sang a lot. Oh, okay. So that was I, one of your Yeah, it was pieces. scary at first. I had to, I 
did it, oh my gosh, I did it in Canada and I did it at Minnesota Opera. And I, my first one I think was in Arizona. I did it in Alaska. Wow. Um, I don't even, I can't even tell you so many times. It's so much fun. I just, I, I was really afraid of it when I first got asked to do it, rightfully so, because it's an iconic part and mm. it's Verdi. So pretty much every skill you have is required. Um, and still, you know, the whole, every time I sang it, there's, I sang it in New Orleans too. I, I mean, there's some, so many cool productions. I sang it in Utah. I had some really cool conductors and some very cool productions. And I think it's, I, I just think it's amazing. And once I got the first one out of the way and that one went really well too, it just, it's, it always requires, it's always scary because it's hard to sing, but it's super rewarding that yeah. role. Super awesome. I think the pairing of Verdi and Shakespeare, you just can't beat that. That's like Verdi's Falstaff or, you know, Otello, like the best. It's just, he's so, Verdi is so um, good at giving you all, all of the um, possibilities of a human. So usually in the heroic and, and heroine version of them, they choose the noble one. But of course, he has tons of people like Iago in Otello or Lady Macbeth and, and, and Macbeth who make the wrong choice. But he gives you all of these character choices, which is what makes his operas so timeless because, you know, people relate to everything about these guys, mm -hmm. all the stuff that could happen. So that when you get somebody like Shakespeare, who it doubles down on that, it's just like this bang banquet of opportunity as an actor and a singer yeah and um i remember when i was reading the review of and i'm not going to remember which opera house but on brenda's website you know there's different blurbs and when they described your lady macbeth portrayal i thought it was just such an apt way of explaining that in that sleepwalking the infamous scene and um is it an aria yeah okay I mean, it's got a, it's got a few interjections from the nurse and the doctor, you know, but it's yeah, it's, it's big old aria. Yeah, and they said that the way you portrayed the, the delirium of Lady Macbeth not being able to wash off the blood, which has that metaphor of her guilt and just her psyche crumbling, um, that you do it and you did it in such a subtle way and. I just loved how I wish I could have seen you do Lady Macbeth. I mean, there's always a chance I'll have to try to find a video. But I have, I think there are some on YouTube, like snippets oh, of it, you know, different things. Some of them are not the greatest quality, but there are lots of different snippets of that online, I think. But yeah, I, I feel like it's, it's set that way. I mean, Verity sets it that way. It's, it's the chance it's such an interesting, we don't have to talk about Macbeth for the whole yeah. interview, but no, it's God, just it's such so an good. interesting opportunity. And I'm sure, I'm positive that actors who play it too would agree that it's your chance, and Shakespeare sets it up this way, to make her sympathetic. Mm -hmm. Like at the end of that show, when she comes out, because she's a woman with such crazy ambition. I always compare her to young singers who have unbridled ambition without 
understanding what it is to get into this, you know, operatic thing. And I'm always cautioning them to like be, you know, just be careful what you wish for. That's Lady Macbeth. You know, she's just absolutely sure that this is what needs to happen. And then when she gets these things, it's way, she, she ultimately doesn't realize that she actually has a, a conscience and a pretty big one. Yeah. And so yeah. when it happens at the end of the opera or the end of the play that her conscience rears its head whenever she closes her eyes, it's just such a shock to her. And I think that makes her so sympathetic. And, and the music that Verdi writes is also supportive of that idea, I think. So yeah. being subtle about it is not that hard. Yeah, and when she says, unsex me here in the play, mm-hmm. just that gendered, um, her, the expectations that she's supposed to fit into the certain box and she feels so constrained. I mean, I always argue that Lady Macbeth is actually the protagonist. I think she has the largest arc. Um, I would go with that. Yeah, I've always been more intrigued by her arc than Macbeth, but that's also because I think her monologues in the Shakespeare play are. um, Genius. Yeah, genius and the inner psyche that she goes through. It is, it's masterful. So how many years would you say you had performed Lady Macbeth? Probably, oh, that's a good question. I'm going to guess probably overarching 15 years, probably. Wow. Maybe 12, 15 years, yeah. Is that common in the opera world to... Oh, Andrew, I wish it were more common. It used to be completely common. But our um, our field is suffering right now. I, I Again, these are all my opinions, I guess. But, mm-hmm. you know, the the level of instruction for singing has has become really kind of it's declined and so when I was saying when I first we first came to New York you know I heard Leontine Price and Joan Sutherland in their 60s and they were fantastic I mean they sounded like they were 35 that's incredible they chose to retire but now so many singers headlong and there have been all kinds of articles written about this you know why is the why is the singing voice becoming why is the career shorter why do voices burn out it must be the travel it must be you know people can jump from one house to another as opposed to getting on ships like they used to you know but I disagree I think it's the instruction I think most singers are not getting the kind of instruction that they need in all ways vocally emotionally mentally in order to sustain Mm. a career for a long time. And that to me is the biggest tragedy of our field right now. Yeah, I can't, I I always say to young singers, my singers particularly, I'm like, I consider it, it would be like Dante's eighth rung of hell for me to have sung for like five years and then not be able to sing anymore. Because once you've done it, it's just the greatest thing. And you're just like, I have to do this all the time. This is the, it's the most soul feeding and very challenging thing. But, you know, to, to not have your ducks in a row, technically before you start, is just a recipe for disaster. Yeah. And I'm assuming you still have a vocal 
practice. Like there's mm-hmm. a way that you care for your voice. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not singing yeah. that much now. I'm teaching a whole lot more, but you all, I feel like I have to sing a little bit to, you know, to be teaching because teaching, I demonstrate and, and I talk a lot and yeah, absolutely. Leontine Price talks about still, she's like, she just turned like 96 or something. She, she would vocalize before for breakfast or she couldn't have her breakfast wow. i mean you know it's a pattern yeah they get and into. it's you know it's it, they're mm-hmm. muscles so you well it's know, like debbie allen dancing still debbie allen yeah. is she puts in the practice and yeah that's why when it's so common now especially the eight show a week broadway schedule right but that performers i'll hear them talk a lot about well i have vocal fry or Someone has nodules that had to be removed. And, but it's very common, which worries me. Way, way, way too common. We, people, you know, they're, they're these, these people, they want to say, oh, it's all about the youth. And I want to say, were you even here 30 years ago when all the greatest singers, you know, Nielsen was, they were old. I mean, they, they sounded amazing and they were venerated because they were old and sounded amazing. And now they're like, oh, it's for the young and it's, oh, and you don't, you know, it's exhausting and they can't sing that long anymore. I, my favorite is when they say, well, but voices aren't like that anymore. <laughs> Wait, what? Oh, voices have changed? No, they haven't. The training has changed. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So you're saying that basically that kind of approach having that approach to Lady Macbeth even using that as our case study, so to speak, that 15 years, that gives you so much perspective of, you know, how did you approach that at the beginning? And then what did you learn from every production? And I'm assuming every director had their own setting and what time period and you're constantly shifting that characterization. Yeah. And, you know, listen, I feel just, just ridiculously lucky because I got to progress in my career. I started out singing Mozart. I started out singing, you know, Countess and Pamina and Fiordivigi and, you know, lyric roles. And, and I sang those for probably 15 or 20 years, right? And then my voice started to develop more and get more dramatic. And so I started adding, and then people wanted me to sing bel canto. So I was singing like lighter, Italian repertoire and then when someone said do you want to sing Norma and I was like eh, okay and then I got to sing that a bunch of times and then someone was like hey what about Verdi and would you like to try Otello okay and so it just became this beautiful progression of all these wonderful things so there were I really have two count them two regrets about my career and it's on this topic and they are I got to sing Desdemona in Otello once, and I got to sing Leonora in Fidelia once. And I would have sung both of those women a hundred thousand times because it was so, it was just like, a, it like it was like fit me like a glove, both of those operas. And I loved singing both those, those characters are fantastic. And it just didn't happen. You know, I, I, I was doing other things. I was asked to do other things and I just got to sing those two things once. And that is sad to me, but otherwise my repertoire, you know, while wide, really lots of it got to be repeated. And that's, 
a joy. Like my husband always says, there's only one first time. And the first time is always scary. And you kind of don't know what to expect. And then you get to do it again. And it just feels like a whole different, you know, like you're walking into a different room. It's just so much more fun. So yeah, I feel really fortunate about that because getting to repeat roles is just such a blessing, you know? Well, thank you for taking us through that because like you're saying, you were hesitant because I'm assuming it goes into a different vocal register or, and it does seem in opera that your vocal part is extremely important. Like you're not going to just go from a lyric soprano to an alto part. Right. Right. You know, they don't want to damage, like you don't want your voice to get damaged, even if you could stretch. Right. It. it, it it's again, this goes back to these short careers, but you know, you want your career to be a journey. You want it to be a developmental process. So you gain skills just like you would if you were, you know, a gymnast Mm -hmm. and somebody says, Hey, let's try to this new thing on the balance beam. You have to gain that skill, but it's the, also in opera, it's the repertoire that helps you gain the skills. So if you're a match to something, it's kind of like, you know, oiling the engine of your voice. It's like, oh, this feels really good. And it's, it's a match to me. And I'm going to do this for a while, but it's just like going to the gym. Mm -hmm. Like you can't just go to the gym and do bicep curls and then think you're going to have deltoids. I mean, you just, you know, you have to do all the things, right? That's such a good metaphor. It's a balance, right? It's, It's a real, it's a real working together balance. So you do this repertoire and then somebody says, hey, would you like to sing this big bel canto? And this is what happened to me my whole career. And so for like a week, I think I can't sing. What's wrong? I can't sing because the skill set is so different and the style is so different. And it would just take, if you're you're very specific about what you do is what I'm saying. If you're very Mm -hmm. specific in the role set, in the way you approach a role, sing it stylistically, vocally with language, blah, blah, blah. Then the next time you do something, say, for example, you know, you just, you just did Verdi's Nabucco, and then somebody says, hey, I have a Norma over here, that of Bellini, that's just going to be like, ouch, for a week or two, because it's going to take a little while for these, those other muscles to go, oh, you want me to come back and do some stuff now. So way back in the early 90s, there was, our, I always use this as an example, there was this, um, I think it was the Mozart's, Mozart year. Uh, it was the anniversary of his death, the 200th anniversary of his death. Everybody was doing Mozart and I was singing Mozart at the time. And I'm here to tell you, I sang like eight Mozart offers that year. And, at the, and they were all wonderful. Yeah. And at the end of that year, I thought I'm never going to be able to do they're like a portamento, which is a skill that you use not so much in Mozart. I'm like never going to be able to do that again because I just had, there were so many other skills that I didn't use. So I think it's, it's just really cool to not ever have a steady diet of anything and to be able to mix it up if you can. Cause I think that also keep all the great singers did that. I think it keeps, and not so much tenors, tenors are, are a little bit less adventurous, the older ones, but I think it keeps, it keeps you, it keeps you developing. Yeah. Yeah. It, it reminds me of um, uh, 
Lara Benanti, who on Broadway, she's a soprano and um, did that Barbara Cook role in She Loves Me uh-huh. um, and talks about how it's like um, all of the sopranos in, on Broadway who are light, have more of a lighter lyrical voice right. um, are all being banished to an island um, singing Glitter and Be Gay from Candide and it's Kristen Chenoweth <laughs> and Kelly right. O'Hara. Right. And, but something I do realize is those who really do sustain their voice on Broadway have a classical voice, it, classical they did vocal have background. Some, yeah, they had some classical training, yeah. Yeah, like yeah. Audrey McDonald right. and Kristen right. Chenoweth, um, Kelly O'Hara, yeah. Yeah, I mean, they don't sing classically, but there are tenets about it, I think, that have really helped all those people that you're talking about. And I'm assuming it's like, even when I got some of that training, it taught me about the practice that you need to put in with support. Mm-hmm. And, you know, maybe you're not meant to belt. <laughs> I think for the Broadway musical right now, that's more of the um, sore spot is everyone is expected to belt. It's become the flashiness. And learning to belt safely is a huge skill. It's really hard. I talk about that with my singers too, because, you know, the women have to sing in chest voice, but it's a classical chest voice and it's akin to belt, but it's, it's really a super different approach, but those women take their chest voice way higher, which is what makes it belt. Mm. But they have to do it in a way that doesn't strip their gears, especially if you're gonna do eight shows a week. So it's an impressive skill. And I'm sure, I'm positive that they all have studied how to do it with, yeah. with safety. Like you're saying, you shouldn't lose your voice after one performance. You shouldn't, you shouldn't lose it unless, I mean, really you shouldn't ever lose it barring illness, mm-hmm. you know, or some, or injury. Yeah. Well, and you've been compared to Jenny Lind, which is no small feat for a reviewer to call, you know, Brenda, you, the next Jenny Lind is, I mean, I'm starstruck because, you know, that her <laughs> infamous role as the Swedish Nightingale, I mean, but it says something about, I think you have a is it called coloratura? I can't remember who said that or what they said that about, honestly. And it might have been um, an oratorio. Jenny Lynn was very famous for Mendelssohn, a big Mendelssohn oratorio. Now I really feel stupid because it's not coming to me. No, not Israel and Egypt. It'll come to me. But um, but it's super, and of course that's incredibly flattering. She was an amazing singer. I, but I get compared to a lot of amazing singers, which is super flattering. It's, but when you're young and that's what people do, that's what critics do because they're trying to place, they're trying to give their audience an idea of what you sound like, right? Because they're just reading about you. Mm-hmm. But I think it also stops later once at least it did for me once I started to sound like me hmm. like I think I I think as I developed I mean every voice is like a fingerprint you know they're different but but training has a big influence on 
how you sound big and your heritage and youth, your, your repertoire. I think once I started to hone in on certain repertoire and, and really start to sing well, people stopped comparing. I, I had Sutherland a lot. I had Mafo. And I think, you know, who is that? Uh, Gundelianovitz, they compare me to. I think, I just think that it stops after a little while. Once you start sounding like you, then they don't feel like they have some place to go with that. Yeah. Then they talk, you know, positively and, and negatively about your vocal attributes, but they don't, mm-hmm. they don't compare you to people quite as much. But it's always, that's incredibly flattering, you know, when they name any of these fantastic singers, yeah. Yeah, it's like I was listening to Stephen Sondheim went on the Stephen uh, Colbert show recently, which is very rare for him to be on a talk show. But um, he said that he learned everything from Oscar Hammerstein um, with um, composition, with musicals. But Oscar Hammerstein said, Steve, you're mimicking. Like, you're trying to sound like such and such Broadway composer, but you need to find your authentic voice. Like, what do you want to bring into this world? And it sounds like that's exactly what you're describing, Brenda, is the, when you come to your own as an artist. Which takes time, you know? It's, and in this um, climate, artistically, there are so many cooks. That's another problem, I think, for us vocally. Um, You know, every house has you've got the conductor and then you've got the coach accompanist and you've got the diction person and especially the bigger houses you know I feel like there's a tragic headlong push toward the general in our field right now I used to say vanilla but I really like vanilla but I you know I I I don't mean it in a nice way I I think there's a very um the, the 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 crazy individualism of say a Collis or a John Vickers or, you know, a Cieppi or somebody who just prized somebody, you know, two notes. I can name that singer in two notes. That's what I want. Mm. I, like it or hate it. I want to name that singer in two notes, which I usually can when I'm listening to serious radio, when mm-hmm. they're playing something from back in the day. Yeah. I can't so much now. It's like Eartha Kitt. Like we know what Eartha Kitt sounds like, right? Yeah. And you're right. And there's the uniqueness and I, okay. I understand what you mean. There's almost this general, you could replace someone in a track. Like, let's just. You have to fit into this box. Mm -hmm. And, and and here's the deal, Andrew, that I think is so the most tragic about it. The audience doesn't want that. No. The audience wants the unique dude. The audience wants the voice they can identify in two notes. But to squeak through that eye of the needle, meaning the, the administration, the general directors, the people who are doing the casting, there's almost this patine you have to put on of this vanilla general thing before you can squeak through. And then if you haven't lost your individuality, you know, hopefully, you can develop that further, but it's just hard for these young singers today to come in with, especially if they're starting to develop their own sound. People are very nervous about that. And it makes, I used to always say, I I totally trust the audience. We're going to be okay because I trust the audience. 
but the audience has been deprived for a long, long time as of today of those really unique and interesting sounds. And so there's still a, a, a faction of people who know, but mm -hmm. there's also a big faction of the audience, as there probably always was, who just goes, oh, yay, that was great. And I'm just sad because I think there's a, a huge part of our field that gets um, the short shrift because we're not we're not hearing these these crazy unique things. And when one gets through, say a Dolores Ajek gets through, people go, "That is such an anomaly." And then and then I want to go, "Have you heard of Casalt though?" Because see, there were all kinds of people like Dolora. I mean, not she's amazing. Not to mm -hmm. you know uh, 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 misrepresent that. But I just feel like there's just a lot of, of general going yeah. on out there right now. And that is sad for the composers and for the opera and for the characters and for the audience. Because, yeah. wow, I want to hear, you know, two notes. I want to know who this is. And I want to go, oh, that's what that person always did in that part of their voice. But, oh, how great they were at college. Oh, but okay, that's really ugly right there. But listen to how she's developing the character. You know, it's just, it's just so, um, I guess I'm speaking a lot to the Konyashenti, but I, I also want to just say, you know, what about YouTube? Do you guys never go to YouTube? Like, <laughs> you don't have to accept this stuff. Go to YouTube and, and listen to how people saying 30 years ago, I sound like a, you know, like my grandma. I sound like the people that I talked to when we first came to the Met. <laughs> well, to, yeah, to I York, mean, but and... I, you know, you're talking too about this importance of the concert singer. Like, I mean, I'm obsessed with Shirley Bassey. <laughs> I think anyone who listens to this because she makes everything new. It's this stamp. It's her style. It's that's why I love concerts of an artist. And I wanted to ask, like, what is it like, Brenda, the difference between. I mean, there's a lot of differences, but when you do a concert. Um, okay, you're heading right compared to a role. So, a production. I think it's so much harder. I think it's so much harder to do a recital or a concert. It tweaks me a lot more than doing an opera role because there's nothing to hide behind. You don't have a costume, you don't have a, a, a wig, you don't have makeup, you don't have a character. It's much more about what you like you say, the stamp that you're going to put on this thing. You don't have this characterization. And that so I mean you actually do if I'm if I'm not being an idiot you actually do that's what's hard about it you, you have to dig through and figure that out you know you're still going to have a musical characterization you're still going to have the text you're still going to have the language of the composer but you just I feel just kind of naked out there mm. doing a recital or a concert it's just to me a lot more challenging plus if it's an oratorio okay you're singing one thing right but if it's a recital you're going to be singing the works of you know four five eight composers which require that requires a lot of of shifting gears mm. vocally and in languages and and you know you have to think through what am I trying to convey in this song how does it go to the next song what is it what is the composer trying to convey in the set usually you're with a piano not an orchestra and there's that whole you know wind beneath my wings attitude of an orchestra not that you know 
singing with piano is great, but it's hard. Mm-hmm. You know, the colors are much more limited. Y- you, the singer, are required to supplant that. So, yeah, I, I think it's hard. I like it, but opera is for sure my big favorite. There's just so much. I mean, perhaps that's just out of... Um, at practice because you know I, I did a lot more of opera than concert work I did my fair share of concert work too though but I just think it's like it's just it's just fun you and the other thing is it's a small it seems like a small thing but it's not you're moving around mm-hmm. and moving around really in opera I mean it just really does help release a certain amount of energy in a concert in a recital you are standing still and it's very easy for that energy that all that you have all that energy pent up to kind of back up on you it's it's kind of hard to manage all of that right mm-hmm. so when you're acting and and like running around the stage i think it's just a lot, lot easier to me anyway i don't know that i know there are singers that would disagree but for me opera much easier if we go 15 more minutes is that okay brenda sure. that's okay with you okay i don't yeah, want to sure. like push past time okay um but this is so exciting so there is, I'm not sure if you know, but I trained in ballet at the Rock School, which was partnered Whoa. with, now it's the called the Philly Ballet. Then it was the Pennsylvania Ballet. Um, and that's when I really learned, when I performed in the Nutcracker, I was the uh, toy soldier who tries, they have to battle the- Right, uh, the mice. The, the mice, mice, exactly. And, but I got this very um, early training about, I don't want to call it corporate theater because, but it is these big theater, these big ballet companies or, and I see this in Broadway or opera houses that I would learn from those who were principals or I got to meet a few of them and they gave me a lot of guidance um, about this tracking with costumes, like some of them were getting the role because they could fit into the costume. Right. And I was like, wait, but I thought we right. were training for ballet and it's about the technique and your style. And then I started to realize, wait, it's about this company not spending more money. <laughs> it was, and that's where I started to realize, wait, there is a, there's a reason why in ballet, they're trying to stay within the same size. And there's a lot of pressure about your body image. And um, it was very intriguing, but then there's these other companies who are doing the Nutcracker. You know, they're not New York City Ballet or the Philly Ballet. They're, they don't have all of that budget, but they're doing experimental work with the Nutcracker. And does that hap- happen in the opera world? Um, you mean in like standard works that they're doing? I mean, I think if I understand your question, Mm -hmm. definitely my first Macbeth was um, this crazy, um, wasn't necessarily modern, but um, the director said, I think, what if she, she's saying, you know, I can't wash off the blood and the blood is imaginary, this is the final scene, right? And the blood is imaginary what if she's covered in blood mm. and like, you know, we just do this whole day and there was this plexiglass uh, wall in the back 
And at one point I just literally had like this bucket almost poured on me of this fake blood. And, it, and I mean, that's not the best example, but there have been just so many where they do updated or they say this singer won't look good in this kind of costume. So let's change the period. Let's, let's make it earlier. Let's make it a bustle period. Let's make it a panier period. Let's, I don't know. It's just crazy how I did in that Mozart year, I did a very rarely done opera called Mitridate of Mozart. He wrote it when he was like 14. And we set it in 19, it was in 1991. So we set it in 1991, North Yemen. And this guy was a despot in the Middle East. And, you know, we, the women were, um, you know, captive and it worked really great. I had my doubts about it. I have no problem with, if this is, if I'm answering your question, Andrew. Yes, yes, yes. Yes. Yeah. I think, Okay. yeah, you are. It's, it's that kind of, I mean, you know, it can work. And, and then there's the opposite where I don't know if you know the scandal years ago with Debbie Voigt not fitting into the little black dress that this director had. Um, no, I don't know. What was the scandal? Oh yeah, he, she. They released her. It was just a, and she. I think it was an Ariadne of Strauss, and um, it was updated. And he went in Ariadne to wear this little black dress. And Debbie, at the time, she's lost a ton of weight now, but at the time she was quite large. And you know, they're like, no, that won't work. She can't fit into this costume and it just caused ripples all around the operatic world it got in the times because people were saying okay wait 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 wait. we really want people to look good on stage but what's the point here is the point for her to fit into the little black dress or is it that she can sing Ariadne I mean where are we going with this you know and so that caused a, a, a big scandal and it was an interesting point I think of discussion for a lot of companies just like you know the the black lives matter movement mm-hmm. is just like the me too movement is lots of these things people of color are showing up in more in operas now and they're being they're producing more female composers operas and i mean i just think a lot of these things are they are topical as they were in the time they were written mm-hmm. you know a lot of these things we were just talking about we gave a, my husband and I gave a class this weekend to his students, an audition class, and a couple of the people were singing something from Un Ballo in Mascara by Verdi. And this is about the um, assassination of uh, King Gustav in Sweden. And it, it, it's, it's, it was replaced, rewritten, set in Boston because the censors didn't like the fact that he was actually writing about King Gustav. And there, was question, there were questions about his sexuality and, you know, all these things have topical influences how can they not you know these composers when they live right but if you're going to do an electra i think you get a lot of choices you can do a mythological electra or you can do an electra about sexual abuse if you want to i mean you could do you could do almost anything that's the beauty of opera if you've got a creative director i'm down as long as it's um consistent Mm -hmm. then i'm like okay if this makes sense through the whole opera i am following you to the end that's yeah that's cool yeah because and you know thank you for that because I started going well I had gone to see the magic flute when I was very little our uh, university in South Jersey Rowan had done a production and my mom took me I made it through the first act and then I fell asleep <laughs> I think I was eight though so okay no no yeah. harm no foul <laughs> um but then <clears throat> 
when I was in college, I started going to the Met. It's all different repertoire, but I have to say one of the most um, visceral experiences is when I saw Bluebeard's Castle. I thought that was extremely well done because of the experimental nature. And I wish I remembered the singer. It was a few years ago. Um, I don't know that opera very well. Um, I don't even actually, Andrew, I don't even know if I've ever seen it. My best friend did that show uh, in Europe somewhere. Loved it. People love it. But, you know, it's just, it's off, it's certainly off the beaten path and an awesome score, right? Yeah, yeah. And that's where, you know, I think when it's about um, these very well-known companies, I don't even want to say well-known, but these companies that churn out, it's always the same repertoire or, right, the Met relies on an audience who they want their IATA. They want La Boheme. Like they want these standards, but this year I'm just excited to see that fire shut up in my bones mm-hmm. is, you know, based off of Charles Blow's um, memoir and that I think it's an all black cast and mm-hmm. an opera that's, unless it's Porgy and Bess, mm-hmm. um, never happens. Right. So I'm excited to see that there are these cha- um changes happening just in terms of inclusion but i just wonder you know it is this constant um tension i would say about um you know what kinds of repertoire does say the met have to offer compared to say a smaller opera company that can take more of those risks with new artists or new uh, works. Right. And this is where it's, I think, incredibly tragic in that particular instance, the loss of New York City Opera, mm-hmm. because they were the ones that did all those things and introduced a lot of fabulous new artists and, you know, did a little bit of the things that were off the beaten path of the repertoire of the Met. And you have to consider when you're doing these things sometimes the size of the house, the type of, um, crew, the, the, the type of work that the, the administration and most of the casts are, are used to doing, because it's not like you can just, I think, just go, hey, let's just do a commission. I mean, there's got to be a certain amount of prep. You know, there needs to be, and I don't mean, I don't mean like in learning the piece, I mean like years. You want to set up your audience. You want to say, hey, this is something that we're thinking about doing. And you know, we're not going to shove this down your throat. There, there are companies in the United States that I think are really, really good at this. Mm-hmm. And I think it's super important to prepare your audience for any kind, any kind of um, series or different thing you're going to do. You know, if you're going to do a, a bel canto series, you need to like have, you know, round tables, invite the artists, have the audience get an idea of what we're talking about here because the beauty of a great work of art, a great opera, but a great work of art in general, a painting or a dance or whatever is you generally can get a lot from it the first time and not have to know anything. Mm -hmm. But the more you know, the more you get. And so to just go, hey, now we're gonna try commission works or now we're gonna do this new thing 
it's, I think, I mean, if, I don't know, I wouldn't want the job of running a company because I think there's a lot involved to, and a lot of risk, you know, for them financially to make this kind of thing all work out. But I have observed a lot of companies doing it really well to prepare their audience, to set it up, to get, to allow new composers, to allow, you know, interesting things to happen and not lose their shirt in the process and not turn off any, in fact, to the opposite, to excite an audience. It's just, I think it's really hard. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and this is where, you know, as we end that you have that opportunity of being an artist in residence at Stony Brook, but also being the director of the Stony Brook Opera. And you have that experience of having all of your um, career background to deliver to the students that you get to coach, but also having all that knowledge I mean, I'm just so, your students must be so lucky. I, I tell you, I can't tell you what joy that gives me. I'm, I say that with surprise because first of all, I can't believe this, I've been there for 10 years. That just went like poof. I had no idea it was, had been that long, but um, I had to talk to HR this summer about something and they're the ones who told me. And I was like, wait, what? 10 years? I had no idea. Poof, like the bed of an eye. But I, I feel like, it's just, it was something that I was not planning to do. I was not planning to teach. When I was a very young singer, I remember thinking, I would love to direct. I think that would be so cool. Cause I always had like a director's uh, idea in, in my head about things. But then I said, okay, wait a minute. I got a little bit further into my career and I saw how um, petulant and difficult singers could be. And I was like, no, 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 I'm not, not going to direct. And then a little bit later, um, when I started at Stony Brook, I kind of got eased into it. It wasn't something that I had planned to do to start with, but I got a great deal of joy from teaching voice and vocal technique to the singers. And I had no idea that it was going to be so rewarding. Yeah. And then my colleagues said, Hey, would you like to direct some of the scenes? Would you like to help the singers with this? And it just kind of snowballed into this thing. And I was just saying to my husband the other night, that part of the tragedy of the pandemic for me was not directing in person with these singers because I get at least as much joy from directing as I did from singing, which is shocking to me. And I really miss it. I can't wait. We're going to start staging next month for our um, scenes program. And I just really kind of can't wait. I'm preparing them now. And I'm like, oh man, it's going to be so much fun to you know, get on our feet and work with them again. It's really, really cool. And I, I really feel, you know, grateful and lucky to have been able to jump into this part of it. Yeah. Well, and I'm grateful that I get to have my students uh, do extra credit where they're going to go to your scenes um, program. Yeah. And, you know, anyone who's in the Long Island or even New York City metro area, The Stony Brook Opera that Brenda directs is wonderful and also very accessible to get to and ticket prices are low. Um, So I hope everyone can journey over there. Um, But I just thank you so much, Brenda, for your time, for your knowledge, for indulging me with all of your experiences. It truly 
I don't know. You've lived a very story life. Oh, bless your heart. I, I feel very grateful about it. I really can't imagine that there would have been any other occupation that I would have done that would have been more challenging or more rewarding. And so that's pretty cool. Yeah. I, I'm really grateful about it. Thank you so much for asking me, Andrew. It's a pleasure. Yeah. Well, thank you for joining us here and, um, you know, follow Brenda um, on her website and yeah. I thank you, Brenda. I know I'm going to be talking to Brenda in the next few weeks. So I have the pleasure of continuing these conversations, but you know, I know Brenda would love for you to just see all of the different programs that she's been a part of. Okay. Thank you, Thanks. Brenda. You bet. Thank you.